Welcome to the Mind Medicine Podcast, where we bring you breakthrough innovations in the field of mental health and well-being. I'm your host, Tommy Moore, bioscience educator and advocate for advancing the state of human health and psychology. This podcast is made possible by Mind Medicine Australia, a not-for-profit organisation founded to increase medical access to and awareness of psychedelic-assisted therapies. In furtherance of this mission, the Mind Medicine Australia podcast aims to facilitate engagement between clinicians, researchers, mental health practitioners and other leaders in psychedelic-assisted therapies to provide expert opinion, share research results and ultimately help to educate the public about potential new opportunities in patient treatment. If you wish to learn more about this mission and get involved, head to mindmedicineaustralia.org. In this episode, it was my pleasure to chat with Katrin Preller. She received her PhD in psychology and neuroscience from the University of Zurich in Switzerland in 2013. After completing her PhD, she investigated the effects of psychedelics on self-perception and social cognition. Her research interests are centered around the neuropharmacology of emotional and cognitive processes in health and psychiatric illnesses, as well as the pharmacological neuroimaging analysis methodology. She has a particular interest in substance use disorders, as well as the role of serotonin system in emotion and cognition. She uses psilocybin and LSD to elucidate the role of 5-HT2A and 1A receptor functions in human cognition. So, Anytime you hear 5-HT2A or 5-HT1A, for example, um, or even just 5-HTP, it's always referring to serotonin or serotonin receptors. So 5-HT2A receptor is a serotonergic receptor that's found in uh, multiple regions of the brain that psychedelics seem to activate. And this is what a lot of neurobiological research is looking into and what roles 5-HT2 agonism, that is when this receptor is activated, what happens to our brain and what happens to the psychological effect of, of a human when this system is activated. And yes, it is a somewhat reductionist way of looking at uh, the psychedelic experience and many will critique the neuroscientific lens of psychedelics and that's totally fine but science is designed to be reductionist so anytime we're talking and discussing about you know the various systems in our brain and body um, as it relates to to neuroscience or, or other means it's what we seem to be able to observe so it's not necessarily the entire picture but we're trying to paint a picture to build up a map of what we do know about these psychedelic substances, which is really what this conversation was all about. What, what do we know thus far about the neurobiological effects of psychedelic substances and what we can make of it all? So after this episode, I have no doubt that you will be equipped with a really solid understanding of what these effects are within the brain and how to make sense of them. With all of that said, it's my pleasure to bring you Katrin Preller. Katrin, welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this chat. It's been a couple of months since I've recorded. 
So just getting my head back in the game a little bit, but you've actually been on my list for over a year now. It's um, it was last Wild who originally said I should get in contact with you. Um, so I seem to bias towards the neurobiological mechanisms of psychedelics when discussing uh, the psychedelic experience. So he mentioned, make sure I get in contact with you. So we finally got there and I'm really excited to, to get into this all. So maybe let's just start with how do you describe what you do? Yeah, so um, but my main question around psychedelics is really to understand how they work. What are they doing in the brain? And what part of um, what's happening under a psychedelic experience is clinically meaningful and relevant? So um, on top of just trying to find out if they work for patients, if patients are actually really getting better, I want to understand why they are getting better. Um, and I think this is really important and a question that we really need to solve in the next couple of years. Um, well, if it can be solved, um, but um, I think we should really focus on trying to understand the mechanism of action because it has a lot of implications for how we use these substances in a, in a clinical setting. Yeah, amazing. So I think a good way of how we can kind of take this conversation into a bit of a journey is that if we start as the substance itself, so perhaps we'll, we'll go into the realm of classical psychedelics, so LSD, psilocybin, what, kind of what differences, I guess, are in there to begin with. And then I'd like it to kind of go from ingestion to absorption to receptor activation, then what the acute effects of that are in the brain and body, and then why those acute effects can be helpful in openness and, and changing self-perception. And then from there, move on to discussing how that can then translate into to long-term change and, and health, really. So let's start with the substance itself. Um, I think you've done mostly with LSD from, from the research that I've looked at that, that you've been involved in. Um, so maybe let's let's start there. There's LSD and psilocybin. It seemed to be the, the main two classical psychedelics that, that are at the forefront of, of this research and, and psychiatry. So what are their chemical structure and what is the process of absorbing such a substance and, and how that interacts with absorption and, and so forth. So let's start there. Yeah, so um, I've worked with both psilocybin and LSD, at least when it comes to studies in healthy participants. Our clinical trials are only, at least for now, are only conducted with psilocybin. Um, so psilocybin and LSD um, do have some similarities, but also differences. So um, psilocybin mainly works on, or only works on the serotonin system whereas the pharmacology of LSD is a little bit more diverse, so it stimulates various serotonin as well as dopamine receptors. But um, their primary mechanism of action, at least when it comes to some of the neural as well as the, um, the subjective effects, is really through the serotonin to A receptor. So basically we administer both our, uh, all our substances orally, so people ingest um, a, a capsule, containing the, the substance. Um, then of course it, first of all, gets into the blood and blood then takes it to the brain. It gets metabolized, at least psilocybin gets metabolized to psilocin. Um, and then it's in the brain and then it starts acting on um, the serotonin to A receptors primarily, as well as of course the other receptors that it's targeting. 
Yeah, wonderful. And so that conversion of psilocybin to psilocin, is that happening in the gut or is that once it's in the brain? Um, no, that's happening before. Okay. Yeah, wonderful. So, yep, we've ingested such a substance. The substance then enters our bloodstream and then crosses the blood-brain barrier and then reaches its its target receptor. So these 5-HT2A receptors, are they everywhere around the body? Do they Are they always on the cell surface or, or how does it kind of reach that spot? Yeah, so um, in general, there is a, a large amount of serotonin receptors in, in the gut. Um, they're also on our vascular system. Um, but of course, we are mainly interested in the brain. Um, so they are in the brain as well. Um, and uh, in the brain itself, they are spread out throughout the whole brain. So you can basically find them more or less everywhere. Um, but of course, in different um, densities. So there are some areas which have more serotonin to A receptors than others, but you can find them pretty much everywhere. Yeah, wonderful. And when it does attach to that particular receptor on, on the nerve cell, presumably, is that nerve cell then activated or is that you know activating somewhere else? Is, is that generally the way to think about it? Yeah, so um, the serotonin to A receptor is an excitatory receptor. It's a D protein coupled receptor. Um, so what that means is that well, once it's um, it's uh, in the receptor, it activates uh, some downstream effects um, that lead to the chances of that neuron it is attached to um, having a higher chance of becoming active since it's an excitatory. Um, uh, receptor. So basically it increases the likelihood that um, this receptor or that neuron will be active and will be firing. And of course, again, you know, this is somewhat dependent on where exactly um, the receptor is located. It's also depending on the exact substance, because as I said in the beginning, um, although we think that the serotonin 2A receptor is the primary target, um, of course, these substances target other receptors as well, which may have a modulatory influence. Um, so, for example, psilocybin is also uh, stimulating the serotonin 1A receptor, and this one is usually an inhibitory receptor. So there is a delicate balance that, um, that happens once the psychedelic is in the brain. Um, but, you know, to simplify, yeah, we have the serotonin to A receptor is excitatory. So the likelihood that things become active um, is, is higher. Yeah, wonderful. Okay. So the substance, the LSD or, or psilocin enters the brain and, and activates these particular receptors. And so from that, so where in the brain are there, there are certain, obviously the, the 2A 5-HT2As in really specific regions of the brain? Could we perhaps touch on which regions they are? Yeah. So um, there are certain regions which we consider to be of particular interest um, for the action of psychedelics. Um, and what we see is that, you know, there are uh, serotonin 2A receptors in the thalamus. Then the Johns Hopkins group has, um, has a different model um, where they're focusing on the claustrum, so a very tiny strip of um, subcortex um, in the brain, which also contains a lot of serotonin to A receptors. But that being said, um, there is also a lot of serotonin to A 
in the brain, in the cortex itself. So um, we do not think that it's only the subcortical structures which are important, but we do think that um, the, the effects of um, psychedelics are basically spread out across the whole brain and that the interplay between these different brain regions is what is then producing the effect of a psychedelic. Um, so it's not like, well, you know, psychedelics act on this specific brain region and that is what's leading to your psychedelic experience and ego loss or whatever you may experience under a psychedelic. But it's really about the interplay of how the brain processes information from one area to the next um, that gives rise to these experiences. Right. So, yeah, we're, we're exciting these receptors and then those receptors are biasing towards being more simulated. And so when they are being simulated, obviously there's, I guess, been a lot of different uh, functional brain imaging technology that's looked at what happens um, when these receptors are active. And so if they are then activating them um, in a, I guess, a more firing is happening in more areas of the brain, does that then mean that there's more connectivity that wouldn't usually be able to be there? Yeah, so um, connectivity is different from activity, right? So connectivity means that um, brain areas are in sync. Um, so, which is an indication that if they are in sync, um, that they do process information similarly, that there may be, that they may be working together, that there is information transfer from one area to the next, right? Um, and what we have seen is that um, there is indeed increased connectivity from the thalamus to certain cortical areas. Um, increased functional connectivity between the thalamus and sensory brain regions. Um, but also in the cortex, there is there are some areas where we've seen that there's increased um, connectivity, which are primarily the sensory brain regions, which have a higher connectivity to the rest of the brain. Um, but there are also other brain regions which show lower connectivity, so disintegration. Um, and these are the association brain regions. You might have heard of the default mode network, for example. This is one part of these association brain regions. So basically, this part of the cortex is responsible for integrating all the information we receive from within ourselves and the external world. And basically forming a coherent picture that is connected to things that we remember, um, to our past that is connected um, to our planning so we can act upon the information we receive. And this is all happening, not in the sensory brain regions, um, but to a much larger ex extent in these association brain regions. And we see that these um, brain regions are, um, are less integrated than under a placebo. And does that last longer than the, I guess, the acute physiological effect would be like, obviously, you know, this, I guess the notion or the correlation between reduced activity in the default mode network means, I guess, a, a more selfless or depersonalized experience. Um, is that like, is there any, I guess, plasticity long-term after, after the ingestion has taken place within that region or, or 
how would a subject feel afterwards? And then obviously like we'd have to come back to our, ourself at some point and, and how is that kind of rebirth of self, I guess we could put it, is that going to be different than, than it was before? Yeah, so um, to, to start with um, one of your comments, um, so again, I don't think that we can pinpoint, you know, the experience that people have to one specific network or region. I really think it's in the interplay. So, and the default mode network is only a part of the association cortices, right? So um, we, we still don't necessarily know if it's really the default mode network, this integration, which is responsible for you know, these feelings of ego loss, for example. Um, it, right now, it really seems that you know, there's more going on. We cannot just you know, attribute it to this specific um, network. Um, and one example um, for that is that, for example, SSRIs, right? They also disintegrate the, um, the default mode network acutely. Which um, and, and people under SSIs usually don't have these um, prominent feelings of ego loss, right? So I think the picture is a little bit more complex than you know just being like, hey, yeah, the default mode network is causing um, psychedelics to have their their um, psychedelic effects. Um, but to answer your question, um, the the issue is we don't really know. Um, uh, to my knowledge, there are two studies out now looking at prolonged effects on brain connectivity um, after administration of a psychedelic. And what they have shown is that one week after um, psilocybin, there is indeed, um, there are still changes in um, connectivity. Um, it seems like it's not particularly strong. It's also not in the default mode network, but it's in other association cortices. Um, and then there's another study uh, by a group in, at Johns Hopkins, which looked at um, changes in connectivity one week and one month afterwards. Now, these changes, so they were able to find changes. So people differed um, in their connectivity from you know, before they had been administered the substance. Um, however, these changes were not necessarily similar to the acute effects of the substance. And I think that makes a lot of sense because, of course, people are not in a prolonged state of, you know, a psychedelic experience. And in fact, that would probably be very difficult to handle if, you know, it's just like, you know, a never ending trip. Right. So we actually don't know. We don't want that. We don't want to keep people in, in a psychedelic state. Right. Um, and it seems like something is happening. The brain, the functional architecture of the brain is different um, after the experience than before, at least after one week. It seems to, at least in one of these studies, it seems to be basically back to normal um, at least three months after the, after the experience. Um, but yeah, it seems like it, ha is having, it, it, ha it is having effects that last beyond the acute phase. Um, what exactly these effects are and where they're coming from is something that still needs further investigations because we, we have very little data on post-acute or long-lasting effects of a psychedelic, at least when it comes to brain imaging. Yeah, certainly. And yeah, like, I guess <laughs> the default mode network kind of caught onto people's attention when that was like, I guess, first kind of discovered or, or found out that that part was um, disintegrated during the psychedelic experience. And so, yeah, everyone's kind of 
jumping on board that that's a very reductionist view. And I think that's a difficulty with science as well. It's, it has to be reductionist to you have to, I guess, focus on certain things when we're designing a scientific experiment to, to pinpoint each part. So I guess because the psychedelic renaissance is still very early, um, there's still a lot of, I guess, brain mapping to do in, in the acute effects and medium and, and long-term effects. But one thing is very clear is that they're proving to be incredibly helpful with our self-perception and, and how we view ourselves as people in the world. And part of that changing what our self-perception is, is, is leading to the long-term outcomes, whether or not we can correlate that with a neurobiological mechanism or not. Um, we can certainly stay, say some of the acute effects and how that might be the reason as to, as to why um, some of these things occur. But yeah, I, I think a lot of people are, are jumping on using the brain as kind of, that's it. This is what's happening. And therefore this is the result. But yeah, like you were saying that there's still a, a lot of work to do. So, so we've attached to the receptor. We've, we've had our neurobiological effect. There's things being stimulated, there's things being switched down. And then there's the psychology of the experience and, and the subjectivity of the experience. So before we get into, I guess, self-perception and, and how that helps with a therapeutic outcome, maybe just touch on a couple more physiological effects. So we, we focus on the brain um, most closely. What other things are happening in our body when, when we're taking such a substance? You said that this, the serotonin receptors in our gut and, and what else is happening? Yeah, I mean, um, we, we have not focused that much on the physiological effects um, beyond the brain, um, to be honest, um, and, and where they necessarily come from. But I mean, what we see is that um, we see an increase in blood pressure, um, which is probably due to the serotonin receptors on, on our, in our vascular system. Um, so that is usually not an issue if people are healthy. Um, so if there are no cardiovascular problems, but it can become an issue if you have any issues in your cardiovascular system. So if you have high blood pressure, then um, taking a psychedelics is, is really not a good idea because then you know your blood pressure might just get out of control. That's why we've um, screened people before we do our experiments, make sure that you know their blood pressure is, is normal and in a healthy range. And um, we also monitor blood pressure throughout, um, throughout the day, um, just to make sure that um, it stays within a range that is, is healthy. Um, yeah, so um, in, in terms of um, other physiological effects, um, there is some nausea usually in the beginning of the, of the experience. Um, I, I don't know if there are any studies which really looked at whether this is a neurological or um, a direct stimulation of the serotonin receptors in the gut. Um, but uh, yeah, this is something that happens to almost every participant that, you know, they feel nauseous in the beginning, but it usually goes away pretty quickly. Um, other than that, there are very limited um, physiological side effects, right? That um, there is no real toxicity, um, even at higher doses. Um, 
which again doesn't mean that you necessarily should take very high doses. Um, but most of most of the effects are really, you know, centered around the the um, neurological or psychological um, effects. Perhaps let's take it to the the psychological effects of psilocybin and LSD. So. They've passed the initial onsets, let's say. They've, they've gone through that initial, I guess, discomfort in, in their stomach or that nauseous feeling during the initial onset. And then things start getting a little interesting. Our vision seems to change quite a lot from, from the reports and from the studies that, that happened. Can, could you explain what's happening there? Yeah. So, um, again, you know, we uh, there is no... Um, no study which you know can tell you what exactly is causing these visual alterations but there are hints which we have and one is that um, when we do EEG measures um, with, with under the influence of a psychedelic that alpha waves are reduced over our visual cortices meaning that there seems to be a disinhibition of our visual pathways. Um, so they seem to be you know, less inhibited, so probably more active even without um, visual stimulation. So it might be that something you know, internally is going on which um, makes them easier to, to become active. And at the same time, as I mentioned before, we have these disintegrated, um, these disintegrated association cortices. So basically, um, the way we envision this right now is that there is activity going on in our visual pathways um, that may or may not be externally driven. Um, and so they become, become active. But at the same time, it seems like our brain is just not able to like, integrate the information as it would do in our, in, in our normal waking states. So there's a disbalance between activity happening in the sensory system and um, reduced capacity to integrate this. And this may explain how our vision becomes distorted because there is this disbalance between you know, heightened, heightened sensory activity and lessened um, integration capacity. So basically the information comes together in a different way. Um, and that's why things don't look and feel how they usually do. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I did note that you had joined Kyle Friston on one paper. I can't remember what the specific paper was, but I've been really interested in his work and I had a chat to him. And so how I kind of imagine the visual system, um, not, not necessarily in the sense of neurobiology, but um, taking up his theory of free energy principle and, and active inference in that our brain, assuming that, you know, all of this predictive processes uh, are usually happening. So we have our, our visual information that's coming in into our retina and then reaching the back of the brain where we then render that information and produce an image. And so I guess the image is the, the product of the, the light information that's coming in. And then our perception is, I guess, how we are inferring or coming to conclusions about what that means um, relative to us, again, based on beliefs and things like that. So how I imagine that in like a, a psychological context is that 
we have, you know, information that when we're talking about like psychiatric conditions where someone may have a really strong, uh, prominent self-bias about themselves. And so putting that kind of theory into, into that model where these thoughts are, are still coming up throughout the, the psychedelic experience, but then the perception or, or the position we kind of put ourselves in when we a thought comes into consciousness can be, I guess, a little bit more permeable. Is, is that how you're imagining it as well? Yeah, so I think there are um, there are overlaps between you know um, between um, the way he describes the the neurobiology or the theory beyond uh, about psychedelics and the way I described it previously. I think it's like looking at the same coin from two different sides, right? So um, as I as I said in the very beginning, there is the structure of the thalamus that. You know, we we um, looked at during um, in in our FMI studies, and that thalamic gating may be reduced during um, a psychedelic experience. So basically, um, the thalamus, which is usually responsible for um, selecting the information that is sent to the cortex for further processing, but this um, this process seems to be disinhibited. Right? So the thalamus is. Um, is not able to gate this information um, as it usually does. And we've seen that with fMRI studies um, looking at thalamic connectivity, but we've also seen that with more electrophysiological measures like pre-pulse inhibition and things like that. So, um, and, and sending, you know, or decreased, or sorry, um, changed um, thalamic gating um, is, basically what is being described in other terms as increased bottom-up inform information flow or um, increased um, prediction, uh, feed-forward prediction errors, right? That's in a way that is um, a very similar mechanism. And at the same time, when, um, when Carl talks about, um, you know, these high-level priors, that you know we have because of um, our past experience and our experience about ourselves and the world, right? Which then you know um, are, are uh, top-down informations that again in that again influence, of course, also the prediction errors that are sent um, upstream. Um, that is kind of overlapping with um, this disintegration of the association cortices, because as I explained before. Um, these brain regions are responsible for integrating this information, right? And you need to have, um, you know, a, a, a coherent understanding of the world to kind of have these priors, right? And if there is um, a disintegration of these association brain regions, then, you know, it's also possible that, you know, there is a loss of priors um, as, um, as Carl would describe it. So um, I think we're actually looking at the same thing here when we're describing the effects of psychedelics with, you know, maybe slightly different ways to test these hypotheses, but it's, um, you know, there's, there's a big overlap between the way I described it and between um, the way Carl may have described it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was just kind of making my own kind of understanding of, of how different people kind of describe it in different ways, but 
how it is all quite similar in, I guess, the neurobiological or, or psychological kind of descriptions of this kind of experience. So putting ourselves now in a therapeutic setting, um, so we've kind of established all of these, or at least some of these um, neurobiological effects as, as far as we know them so far. Um, and if there are more, please, please continue on with that conversation. But putting a, a patient in such a setting and, and, you know, bringing all these brain changes, how do we then, I guess, push the patient in the direction of having a positive outcome from that? So we have this, you know, new concoction of brain chemistry and new brain biology that, that's taken place. Um, how are we then going to, you know, push the patient into the right direction? Yeah, I think you're asking one of the most important questions around psychedelics. Um, and, and the honest answer, and I know that this can sound frustrating, but the honest answer is we don't know because we just don't know why exactly these substances are beneficial for the patient. And we have um, probably like 20 theories which range from you know, changes in um, serotonin to A receptor expression to induced neuroplasticity to changes in brain networks, which we already have touched upon, um, to obviously also more psychological um, processes like changes in emotion processing, changes in reward processing, changes in social behavior and social processing. Um, insightfulness changes and in how you perceive yourself as um, you mentioned before so there's a lot going on um, and um, most researchers have their pet hypotheses but we really have too little data at the moment to be able to answer which one of you know these these many many processes that happen are actually responsible for the clinical effect. Um, and we, we need more mechanistic studies into, into this question because um, each one of these different potential mechanisms of action may have different implications for how we conduct therapy or, as you said, like push the patients towards you know, having the most beneficial experience they can have, right? So I think it is critical to... To, you know, hopefully by the next time we talk to have some answers to this question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we can, we can discuss the precise mechanism of, of you know, what may happen, obviously, hypothetically. Um, but at the same time, we don't necessarily need to know what's happening inside of the brain to understand that positive outcomes are taking place. So it's in, I guess, a lot of psychiatrists and, and health professionals all over the world in their frustration that, you know, I guess FDA and other a big um, drug advisory boards are staying away because they're waiting for this, you know, this perfect mechanism and paint the perfect picture of what a psychedelic substance is doing and, you know, using that to really have a case-by-case, -case, I guess, individual basis for, for each patient, which of course is, is very, very helpful, but you know, at the same time, we do we necessarily need to know what's happening in the brain to understand that these substances are, are doing their thing really well? Yeah, I mean, that is the big question, right? Um, because um, 
as you as you if it's to be seen in the last um couple of years and more data will follow um these substances seem to be really helpful for patients um i don't think that there is a doubt that um they are um however we're seeing increasingly more data showing us that they might not be helpful for everyone um and as you can imagine uh it is a for the patient it is very frustrating if they're going to you know through a therapy which has you know includes this um, strong altered state of consciousness, which includes a lot of psychotherapy, and then not, you know, benefiting from it, even though, you know, they read in the media that this is the magic bullet, this will help you, right? Um, and uh, also, of course, this is very frustrating for the people offering um, the therapy because it it is intense, right? It's it's a lot. It's a lot of hours. Um, and it's, you know, um, supervising someone under um, this acute state for, for six to eight hours at a time. And um, that brings us to the next point that, of course, also makes it expensive, right? Um, so I think that, um, yeah, understanding why and who this therapy helps will reduce a lot of burden, be it on the healthcare system, on the therapist, or especially on the patient themselves, right? Um, because the hope is that, well, we if we know why it works, we can tailor the therapy to this mechanism of action in a way that, well, first of all, everyone will have the most promising um, therapy, that you know, if we know that it's about um, induced neuroplasticity, then maybe we should do some trainings after the experience and things like that, so that you know, first of all, we get more people to respond to the therapy, and for those who respond to hopefully have very long-lasting effects, because that's another question we still don't really know how many people have you know how how long they profit they benefit from from um, the psychedelic administration and why some people you know have a remission and and um, continue to feel good and others don't so that's the first thing so um optimizing the therapeutic approach um to for it to last longer um and for it to be even better but then there is a, por a portion of of patients who don't respond that well so maybe you know by optimizing the therapy we can you know we can induce beneficial effects for those patients too and if we find out that you know we're dealing with a mechanism of action that is just not working for everyone if we would have an idea of who is likely to benefit and who not then we might not have to put a patient through um, this type of experience um, when we already know that it is very unlikely that it is going to be helpful. Mm, yeah, you've, you've said that really well because, I mean, certainly in Australia, there, there seems to be, you know, it's obviously there's a lot of lot more coverage in the media and, and I guess more research is being funded and, you know, there's a lot of impatient researchers and psychiatrists who, who are trying to really help people and do the best for their patient um, but at the same time, like you've said, like the model is still being refined and there's still certain things that, that need to 
be researched to really get the best picture so that when it is, I guess, really widely um, accepted into the psychiatric um, process that, you know, it's very clear what kind of patient would be most beneficial for, for using this and what um, patient will, you know, you know, what, I guess, yeah, the, 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 the niches and the, the alterations that can be made on a case by case basis. So yeah, the better that we understand these substances and the more research that, that goes into how we understand it, the, the, the better the model that's going to be for, for, I guess, decades and, and centuries to come really. What research are you, are you currently undertaking at the moment? What are you looking at now? Yeah, we're, we're currently really trying to answer exactly the questions that we've been discussing in the last few minutes. So um, we just finished a study testing psilocybin for the treatment of depression. And there is still a study ongoing looking at psilocybin for relapse prevention and alcohol use disorder. Um, and both uh, studies focus, um, of course, on clinical efficacy. So do the does psilocybin work? Does it help um, people? Um, are they getting better? Um, but they're also focusing on answering the question, um, why are they getting better? So there's a lot of mechanistic uh, secondary endpoints involved, um, like, you know, changes in fMRI, but also, you know, some behavioral tests, a lot of questionnaires, of course. So, of course, we cannot answer all these or test all these hypotheses that we discussed um, before in just one or two studies. We need to focus on specific things, but we're trying to capture the effects of psychedelics on multiple levels and um, try to find out um, what is helpful for the patients, what is contributing to them feeling better. Is it the same thing in depressed patients as in alcohol use disorder patients, or is there a total different mechanism of action happening? All these things we don't know. Of course, we're, we're, we're speculating about a transdiagnostic mechanism of action, um, but we we don't really we don't really know. It has not been tested, right? So um, these are the questions we're we're currently trying to answer with these clinical trials. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I guess when it comes to Western medicine, I mean, obviously these substances are not new substances necessarily. Obviously, LSDs are more new more new because it's it was manufactured in a lab, but from from the ergot mushroom, of course, but these substances have been used for millennia across pretty much every culture in the world. And, you know, they weren't necessarily, you know, using it to treat this specific, you know, major depressive disorder or treatment resistant depression that didn't really exist um, until, you know, Western medicine found a name for all these, I guess, we're now called isolated conditions. And so, yeah, that the trans diagnostic action, I think is, is, where I think these substances are going. And I think it's really about like promoting wellness more so than it is about, you know, treating individual conditions. And so I guess if we understand why it's promoting wellness, um, then we can, you know, properly integrate it into to Western medicine in a, in a, I guess, a refined practice. But yeah, it, it really excites me to, to see that these kind of things are being investigated a lot more and, and it's getting a lot more traction and people are 
being more accepted or accepting of these substances. So I think it, it, it's really, really exciting. And, and the work that you're doing is incredible. And, and I'm certainly keen to get into the research path down the track as well. Um, certainly similar to, to the research that you've done. So very excited by this, by this time and space. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add before we close out this conversation? I, I think we, we touched up on, you know, the um, really a lot of mechanistic, um, mechanistic actions of, of psychedelics. And um, yeah, there are, there continue to be many, many open questions. And it is sometimes frustrating to, um, you know, not having the complete picture, not being able to tell the full story. Um, and, and, but that's what it is. That is what science is about that's why we need to do the research and um i do have confidence that you know we we're, we will be getting there to get this you know more holistic um view and integrated view of how psychedelics work in the brain and how they contribute to um people getting better um but until then you know we, we really need to do the science we need to stick to the science um and and let the data tell us you know what's happening in the brain um, and then it might still take a little while, but we're, we will be getting there. Um, I mean, I doubt that we'll ever have a complete understanding of what exactly these substances do, but we're, we're getting there to, um, you know, get glimpses that we can integrate into our understanding of what is happening. And um, yeah, a lot that still needs to be done, but, um, but I'm very hopeful that with um, a lot of new people being interested in this field of research now and things you know, picking up and um, more funding being hopefully available, um, that we'll, we'll get there and um, hopefully we'll be able to use these substances uh, to, to help people and to learn from their mechanism of action to advance psychiatry and medicine in general. Perfect. You've summed that up really, really well. Um, I do want to touch on what we didn't really touch on too much was in relation to the psychological experience, what people describe as like a mystical type experience. And so sometimes I question whether, you know, we can say a mechanism that invokes such a spiritual type of experience. So maybe, yeah, we will never quite get to a, a specific mechanism of action. A lot of, I guess, uh, yogic instructors and, and spiritual gurus of the likes will, will criticize um, the scientific work because like I was saying before, there's, there's, they aren't necessarily new substances. They've been used across many cultures and, and religions and, and, and spiritual practices. So, you know, part of that, I think, there may be areas that won't be able to be described mechanistically, but certainly when it comes to, to therapeutic outcomes, we can, we can get as close as we possibly can. And I'm very hopeful. Me too. Wonderful. All right, Katrine, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch base in, in a few months time or, or some, some years down the track and, let me know when any research projects are coming out that, that may be of interest, but I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. That was um, re really interesting, a lot of fun. So uh, thank you. You're very welcome. Now, if people are wanting to connect with you or follow some of the work that you do, where can you direct them? Yeah, so um, 
first of all, I I am on Twitter. So um, if you want to be informed um, about you know the latest papers that come out of the lab, um, just follow me there, and I'll do my best to keep everyone updated on on new exciting science that is being published. Um, and of course, always just reach out and send me an email, um, and and I'll try to respond as soon as possible. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. I wish to remind you that the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease and should always consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional before making any changes to your life and for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. Alrighty. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode and that you have learned something. Uh, But thank you so much for your interest and support in mental health and psychedelic therapy 